uh, yelling in a recruit's face. If they've got the ability to be a Marine, they can muster to make it. In the lead up to the Battle of Normandy, Utah, and Omaha beaches, and uh, the 101st Airborne parachuted through Hellfire to secure the rear as the beaches were being taken. Preparation for the Airborne began in Georgia, though, at the foot of Mount, uh, Mount Curahee. It was a gut-wrenching run to the top of Curahee, uh, three miles up, three miles down, and it got even more challenging uh, the higher your elevation. And if you didn't crush it, you were sent home. Hardening for mission was the goal of all that preparation. Uh, to make a soldier out of a raw recruit. George Patton once said, I am a soldier, I fight where I am told, and I win where I fight. Now slogans like that can inspire us to all kinds of admiration and cause people to, to admire a strong leader like that, but how many follow? Admiration alone will not make a soldier of the caliber of a Nick Winters or those who will lead others through the black forests in Germany. In the military, great leaders are made in boot camp where they are learned how to be good followers first. Soren Kierkegaard was a theologian, philosopher, pastor in Copenhagen, Denmark, about the time of our U.S. Civil War, and at that time, most of Denmark were professing Christians. And Christianity was the air that people breathed, and yet he challenged his parish with these words about the difference between admiration and following. The difference between an admirer and a follower still remains, no matter where you are. The admirer never makes any true sacrifices. He always plays safe. Though in words, phrases, songs, he is inexhaustible about how highly he praises Christ, he renounces nothing, gives up nothing, and will not reconstruct his life, will not be what he admires, and will not let his life express what he supposedly admires. This text sets before us a challenge. Jesus calls his disciples to be Christians, to be disciples, to be his followers, and not admirers. This means that we have to take very seriously the calling that we have been called to. And in this text, there is paradoxes that we have to take seriously and to own personally. And the first paradox that I want us to consider is in verse 34 to 36, the importance of taking seriously the paradox of the Prince of Peace. Why would it say that he has not come to bring peace but to bring a sword? I mean, isn't this he whom the angels sang, peace on earth, goodwill towards men? How is it possible? This is the very same person that those angels sang over, and yet he's now saying he brings a sword. Now, peacemaking 
as a way of life is an essential part of how we find the good life. People who are continually at war with other people don't flourish in life. And the good life, though, that we really want is summed up in the Sermon on the Mount. The word blessed in the Beatitudes is a Greek word, which is makarios, which literally means a blessed state, a place of flourishing. Or we might say this is the path to the good life. Everyone pursues what they believe to be the way to flourishing or experiencing the good life. No one chooses what they, what will actually they think will bring them pain and suffering. No one goes along those lines unless they have a vision that on the other side there is the good life waiting for them. We all have a vision of what the good life looks like. Now for me, the good life might look like sitting in a research library with 300-year-old manuscripts and just like in awe, you know, over these things, not having any distractions and lots of time to, to go through these. For others, the good life might seem like, you know, sitting in a tree stand, waiting for that big one to come up over the hill, right? For some, the good life might be that, that vacation that just will not end. But the good life can be really much simpler than that. The good life might be if I, in the moment, decide to eat or drink, browse and click, purchase, sleep, or finish that task. All of these could be little short elements that entice you towards the good life. And our desire for the good life can cause us to become discouraged when we do not obtain those things that we really desire. Now, anything that I've just described might be something that is on its own fine, but the Sermon on the Mount holds before us a shocking, shocking alternative way to find the good life. Jesus said, if you recall, flourishing or blessed are the poor in spirit. Flourishing are those who mourn. Flourishing are those who are meek. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. The Beatitudes themselves were a shocking paradox that seemed to have a contradiction built within them. And they then cause us to decide they cause us to have to make a choice. Is Jesus right or is Jesus wrong? And in that moment of decision, we are saying whether or not we believe that Jesus is telling us the truth or not. Are these just pleasant-sounding words that we're hearing that sound nice and they, we admire the beauty of the the poetry and the harmony of the symmetry. and But we look at it from a distance. Or do we lean in and follow? There is a conflicting message in verse 34 that requires of us a decision. 
Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And Jesus is telling us that the good life that we desire, the liberating good news of Jesus Christ, is that we have access to the Father through Him by faith alone. And relationship with the Father is what brings us the abundant life that we so seek and desire. But this includes difficult decisions. It includes the surrender of our sinful wishes, our sinful desires, and turning from pride and adopting an eagerness to consider following everything that He has commanded us. Jesus presents the way of peace, but it requires a decision that has some potential consequences. Now, the angelic message wasn't wrong at all. Peace can come to open hearts, and there will be a universal acceptance of Jesus' kingship at some point, and every knee will eventually bow. But the sword is a metaphor that describes a violent response to what Jesus is telling others they need to do in order to get the good life they so desire. Peace is an admirable, it's a, it's a quality that, that people desire, but peace at all cost will move us from being a follower to being an admirer of Jesus. It's a conflicting message that requires us to decide for or against what Jesus is telling us we need to hear. A decision for Jesus will bring peace, but it will also bring violence. Verse 35 to 36, let's see these words again. Jesus says, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, if you were with us here Two weeks ago, we, we, we came across words that sounded a lot like this earlier in Jesus' sermon on mission. In verse 21 and verse 22, we read these words, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have, put, and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. This is... In verse 21 and 22, an allusion to something that Micah said nearly 700 years before Jesus was even on the ground living in Galilee. Now, in verse 35 and 36, the allusion is stripped away, and this is a direct quote from what Micah said back 700 years ago. Micah the prophet, do we remember what Micah said? Micah who was preaching to the northern tribes of Israel, saw a day in his own, in the near future of his people, in which society would break down. Nation would fall into dishonor, and invasion by their enemy to the north would come very soon. And it happened. Maybe you remember this poem from high school. The Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold, and the cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold. And the sheen of their spears was like stars on the sea, 
when the blue waves rolled nightly on deep Galilee. Maybe you remember that song, by, uh, that poem by Lloyd Byron, but it reflects the historical events that Micah foretold. And theologians have marveled at how Jesus, instructing his own generation, could reflect on these historical events that had occurred 700 years ago and say, hey, this is something that's in your near future. This is something that you need to be anticipating. And even Jewish interpreters of Micah had even thought that those verses were relevant to the Messianic age. Now, the significance for us, as a society, we can see when God is removed from our culture, our society begins to collapse. We begin to see and observe some of these things that, that Micah foretold in his own generation, and Jesus was communicating to his own generation, and we also will be communicating this until the Lord returns. Put no trust in neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms and the son that treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies shall be the men of his own home. How does this apply to us who would be perhaps tempted to be an admirer of Jesus and not a follower of Jesus. The person who does not want to be troubled by the commands of Jesus will stand at a distance from what he has asked us to do so as to avoid the conflict that is described by Micah. Jesus did not call people to admire him but to follow him. And the moment in which we deeply decide to follow Jesus, no turning back, people will turn against you. People will say you have lost your mind. You used to have such a, 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 a fun life before you started to follow Jesus. I don't even want to be around you anymore. You might remember in John's gospel, the man who was born blind, when he was healed by Jesus on the Sabbath, he began to be interrogated by the Jewish leaders, and when, when, when they weren't getting what they wanted from the blind man, they went to the parents, and the parents began to be questioned, interrogated, and they got fearful, and they, and they stepped back and said, oh, no, 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 you can ask him. Let him decide. He's of age. Why don't you let, let him decide? We're not getting involved in this conflict. There is nothing more beautiful than a close family. But if it becomes necessary to balance one against the other, then we must put Christ over family. That's an admirable thought how many will be willing to do it? We have to take seriously not only the paradox of him being the prince of peace, but also having a sword. We also have to take seriously the paradox of what is required of a worthy follower. Verses 37 through 39. Let's read these again, and I want you to note as I read it, 
the multiple times that Jesus, is, Jesus uses the word whoever, and then also how many times he uses the word worthy. Uh, verse 36, uh, 37, it says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus uses the universal whoever or whosoever, if you've got a King James Bible, uses it five times. And he repeats himself to make it very clear that the call to follow is universal. There is a universal opportunity to follow Jesus. But on the other hand, it also signals that Jesus does not accept admirers. He only accepts those who will genuinely follow him. A follower strives to be what he admires. An admirer keeps himself at a distance, personally detached. He fails to see that to be what he admires requires of him to follow the example that has been set before him. Admirers are a lot like those who go to the theater. You know, watching war violence on the big screen can be exciting, and it fills one with a full imagination, and you can almost think that you're on that front line. But no matter how immersive the cinematography is, you're still sitting at a safe and calm distance. When there is no danger, or when there is a dead calm, when everything is favorable to our Christianity, it's all easy to confuse whether or not you're an admirer or a follower. The admirer can be in a delusion that he takes the true one personally when all that they really are doing is just playing it safe. In addition to these five whosoevers are three worthies. Now, what we're hearing by Jesus is a definition of the kind of people that we should be looking for when we call people to Christ. You can't spend time with people who are not willing to risk themselves to follow Christ. If you call them and they, they, they take a few steps forward, and then they stop and take a few steps back, you may be looking at someone who is unworthy, who thinks that they are a follower, but really they're just simply an admirer and not really serious about following Christ. Those who believe that Jesus offers them the good life will be willing to disassociate, if necessary, not be obnoxious, but if necessary, from even family, because they believe that Jesus offers them a better family. They may at the same time deny their own life goals because they believe that Jesus offers them eternal life. Both of those things are strong motivators for following 
and truly following and not simply admiring Jesus Christ. Verse 37, we find implicit in this condemnation of someone who's not willing to follow and deny family and unworthiness. So let's read verse 37. It says, um, whosoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's a negative statement, but there is a positive implication that Jesus will provide a forever family. It's the opposite, and not get hung up on the negative. Uh, last spring, I uh, read an old account of a martyr of a woman named Perpetua. Uh, that you can read it, an English translation of this. Um, it happened in the what I believe is the second century in northern Africa. It's a narrative of a mother of a young infant who was who refused to recant her faith in Jesus Christ at a time when it was a capital offense to be a Christian. And she refused to recant, and scholars believe that Perpetua was a, a woman who was born into a middle to maybe even upper class family. She was given the opportunity to read, which was perhaps rare for ladies at that time. And she lived in northern Africa underneath the Roman occupation, and she was nursing a baby when she was taken and put into prison. And her father came and pleaded with her to recant. And Perpetua said of this experience in her own words, she said, Father said these things about his devotion to me, kissing my hand, throwing himself at my feet, and with tears he was not calling me daughter now, but lady. And I was hurting over my father's fortune because he alone out of all my family was not rejoicing over my suffering. That's a remarkable, even admirable demonstration of following Christ and laving family for your faith commitment to him. In time, as the account goes on, she let her baby go to be with family, and then she was taken into the arena where she was torn apart with five others who would not deny the name of Jesus Christ. And we have to ask ourselves a question. That's something that we might say that's an admirable demonstration of one's faith. We ought to ask ourselves internally, do we have the commitment to follow someone like Perpetua into the arena? We love our earthly family, but if they do not turn to Christ, they will eternally perish. They won't have everlasting life. Now, we don't need to be obnoxious to our family. Christ does, however, call us to come out and be with the congregation and spend time with our forever family. In Perpetua's company, there was also another female. Her name was Felicity, and she was pregnant. She was large with child. She was towards the end of her term, getting close, and she, she, she knew Roman law would not allow her to be executed with those 
in her group because it was forbidden to execute a, a woman who was pregnant, and she prayed that God would deliver her of her child so that she could go out into the arena with her family. A remarkable account in which she in God answered her prayer and she gave birth towards the beginning of her ninth month and then she went out bravely into the arena with the rest. That's amazing faith. Amazing faith. And that story has been repeated through the centuries. This is an early account, but that, that, has, that kind of thing has happened through the centuries and even is happening now in places like China. Still happening. And the question is, will we be admirers of that or will we be followers of Christ? Do we believe that Jesus offers us a forever family? Does Jesus also offer us eternal life? Verse 38 to 39, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In Matthew's gospel, this is the very first mention of the cross, the very first mention. And so, we also probably are surprised at that because we have become immune to hearing about the cross. We, the cross um, has, has, has so filled our imagination that it sometimes lacks the punch that it would in the first century. Crucifixion was something that was usually reserved for slaves, political enemies of the state that needed to be a, a public spectacle made of them. It was not only the, the most severe form of execution, but it, caused, it carried with it a stigma of, of disgrace for those who were hung out for all to see. And to have a family member crucified was the ultimate shame. There is a famous Roman graffiti in the catacombs, not the Christian catacombs, but in non-Christian catacombs in Rome, in which a Christian is ridiculed for his belief in a crucified God. Etched in the stone is a picture of a man with a raised hand in front of a cross with a, this figure on this cross having a donkey-headed figure. And the inscription on it says that Alex Menos is worshiping his God. And the implication is that Alex Menos is asinine for following a crucified God. It is ridicule, it is shame. And ridicule and shame will prevent many people from vocalizing their allegiance to Jesus Christ. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he had many, many admirers. In John chapter 2, 23 to 25, the apostle records that when he was in Jerusalem, there were so many that were marveling over the signs that he was doing. And he said, and many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And that's very significant because after John chapter three, 2 is John chapter 3, in which Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Nicodemus, coming in the secrecy, 
and not wanting to have himself publicly exposed as engaging Jesus thoughtfully was expressing his admiration for Jesus. Even before the crucifixion, Jesus was a hot topic in Jerusalem, and it would not have been expedient politically for him to be seen with Jesus. And while we're not 100% sure at what point Nicodemus came into the light, at this point it would appear as though Nicodemus was an admirer. He was looking for some sort of compromise where he could be connected with Jesus. He was interested in marveling over his offer of eternal life, but he was unwilling to admit that he had an interest in Jesus in the broad daylight. He had questions about eternal life. He was, but was he really willing to leave his life as he knew it, as in a respectable Pharisee before the eyes of others? It's easy to sit in a congregation on a Sunday morning and admire the singing, to admire the sermon, but really never give up anything and never truly make any sacrifices of faith for Jesus. Jesus said in this closing paragraph, whoever finds his life will lose it. If you think you have found something better than Jesus, you're going to lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's a paradox. There is obviously a wordplay going on there. But do we believe what Jesus is saying? Do we believe Jesus is saying that he is the good life that we so desperately seek? The Sermon on the Mount holds up that good life for us. Flourishing are the poor in spirit. Flourishing are those who mourn. Flourishing are those who are meek. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. See, those who have purposed in their hearts to follow Jesus adopt a follower's life. They mourn over their sin. They, they, they sense their own unworthiness, and it causes them to hunger and thirst after righteousness that they don't already have. And that's what comes by giving up one's life here and truly following Jesus and taking the commands that he left with us seriously. To have the kind of wholeness, to have the kind of good life that you so desire means that you strive for a wholeness of heart. Not to live a double life. You in your own hearts know who you really are, and you can come to a congregation on a Sunday and you can put on the Christian look, but you know how you really are on the inside each and every day. Do you really have a love for Christ, for His people? Do you have a love for practicing spiritual disciplines of, of meditating on His Word and of praying? Do you, do you have a desire to to talk to God in prayer about everything that 
fills your heart with anxiety? Do you, do you then turn and say, Lord, I'm anxious and I need you. Regular worship as a part of one's life of, of giving and speaking about Jesus to others. In short, all of these things are a gradual reordering of your life so that you find the good life. As we do these things, what we're doing and saying is, I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. Therefore, I will glorify God in my body, which are the Lord's. It's a pouring out. I think that this will bring me the happiness that I really desire. If I click, if I spend, if I do, if I ignore these things don't bring you the good life that you so desire. Do you believe so that you will follow what Jesus says and pour out this life to gain the life that will go on into eternity? See, Christ came into the world with a saving purpose to save people from themselves. You have to give up your life. He didn't come just to instruct you so that you could be like an admirer of him. He came so that you would actually follow him and, and do these things and find everlasting life. Now, I want to be very careful. Doing these things is not the entrance to eternal life. Faith in Jesus Christ alone is entrance into the kingdom of heaven. But there is opportunity to enjoy the kingdom here and now by following the things that he has asked us to do. If you think you have a better way of it, uh, come, come instruct all of us. Christ is the one who has all knowledge, and we have to humble ourselves before him. Jesus was born, and he lived, and he died in lowliness. It's impossible for anyone to sneak away from the pattern that he has left us. God calls disciples to be his followers and not admirers. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the word. I pray, Father, that it, that which your spirit would use would penetrate to awaken, to enliven. Not that we would just simply admire, but that we would deeply follow you and be hungry and thirst after righteousness. Lord, as we then, in a little while, will come to the table, may we see in these emblems, these symbols, the, the picture of the, the cross and the intense sacrifice that was made for us which we receive by grace alone. Thank you for it. Lord, may we not become complacent admirers, but that we would be genuine followers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.